0: All right, we're going to go ahead and jump into this chapter because there is so much amazingness in here that I don't know whether we're going to be able to actually finish it in one night because I may get carried away. Uh, But I do want to commend to you to look at the words to that song that was playing as we came in. As I've said before, one of the things that's so interesting about Lewis and the Inklings and Tolkien And the Narnia stories is that there has never been higher interest in our culture in those stories than there is right at this moment. as witnessed by this huge Netflix deal that just happened and the fact that there are multiple indie folk groups aiming at millennials that are writing songs about Narnia, which is just amazing. So uh, that is a, a very hopeful thing. Uh, If you feel depressed about the state of the world, you can focus on that and be encouraged. So let me start us off with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Father, we thank you for this story, and we thank you especially for this 12th chapter of it and the riches that are found in it. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear the truth from your word that Lewis has woven into this chapter, and that through that, we would be transformed more and more into your likeness. For we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, as always, Silver Chair, book four or book six, depending on which scholars you want to agree with. And as we talked about before, part of what makes this story so remarkable is the fact that it is simultaneously operating on three different levels. And it is wonderfully successful on all three of those. So we've been talking about the children's story part and what a great adventure it is and all of the character lessons and all of that. We talked last week uh, the first uh, introduction of Plato's Allegory of the Cave and how Lewis is playing with that imagery, which is so very relevant for our culture today. And tonight, we get into uh, the part about Anselm and Descartes with the ontological argument, and then the whole thing we've been talking about, this idea of truth and what is truth that Lewis has woven all through this story in just a glorious way. But as always, I want us to hark back to our beginning and think about the reason that we're looking at the Inklings and their work is because of their example of living deliberately against the cultural tide, and working um, very specifically to build their fellowship and to figure out how to respond Christianly to all of the things that were going on in their culture that they felt were going in a direction that they didn't like. And rather than throw up their hands in despair, they decided to engage and live in a very deliberate kind of way, which I believe really models what this verse in Philippians is talking about. So let's say that together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And again, this is a very active sort of discipleship. It's not a passive discipleship and it's a discipleship of the mind as well as the rest of the being, which is so important. And we've talked about how The transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty, really informed the work of the Inklings because they saw those as such important pointers to the kingdom of God, particularly in a culture where despair was rampant. And despair, in case you've missed it, um, is rampant in our culture right now as well, so they are particularly relevant. We've talked about the origins of Darnian and Lewis's boyhood starting back when he was around nine uh, with his uh, writing The History of Mouseland, uh, a multi-volume work and in its inception. Uh, and so you just see this creative genius and this idea of the fawn and the wood with the parcels with the snow falling and the umbrella that came to Lewis when he was around 16. And then it wasn't until years later that the story started writing. And as Lewis would say, it started writing itself And then Aslan came bounding into the story and changed everything. So it is a a remarkable uh, tale about someone going through a long gestation of a creative process. So what that means is it's not too late for anybody in here. You never know what might happen. So um, one of the things we've talked about is that Lewis is a genius in terms of his economy of words and what he can get across in a very short number of pages. And it's very interesting, if you pull the illustrations out of this book and then download the whole thing into a document, it's really not very long at all. And when you think about all that he manages to pack in here, it's just incredible. So just to review, and the reason, as I said, that we review every time is this whole framework, Lewis wants you to have this whole framework in mind for each chapter it's not as if you leave behind what's happened in the first part you have to hold it all simultaneously so we talked about experiment house and education this idea of progressivism throwing out uh, all of the history and accumulated knowledge of mankind because we're so much smarter than all of those other people And there's a great article in the london telegraph this week i don't know if you saw this that the School of Oriental and Asian Studies, which is one of the premier graduate programs in Asian and Oriental Studies, is calling on the school, part of a student group is calling on the school to stop teaching Plato and Kant and a couple of other people because they were white men. And that in and of itself means that they should be discredited. And this is in the philosophy department, the ph- One good thing, philosophy departments are not big embracers of relativism (laughs) because a philosophy professor can take relativism and dismantle it in about 90 seconds, Uh, so they don't have much truck with that, Um, so they have been blasting this, but it just shows you that this is still going on. The second radical thing in the story, framing it from the beginning, outcast as protagonist, a bullied junior high girl is the lead character, radical for the 1940s. Eustace changed by Aslan. And we've talked about the beautiful way Lewis shows this. It's not a fairy tale kind of thing where, like, he's hit with a magic wand and all of a sudden he's a perfect boy. He is still struggling with his sin, but he's now in relationship with Aslan and his instincts are moving toward that. Also, this whole idea of vulnerability leading to fellowship at the beginning used to sharing the deep secret of his heart with Jill, that if he had not chosen to do that, none of this quest ever could have happened. And then Aslan calling or calling Aslan, they think they're trying to go to Narnia. Aslan summoning them to Narnia. It's that beautiful working out of the Holy Spirit uh, working in our hearts to change what we want. So lots of good things there. Uh... Probably my favorite part other than chapter 12, there is no other stream. Just that beautiful picture of this beautiful, clear brook when she is just so thirsty, she's about to die. And the lion sprawled next to the brook and her wanting the lion to promise that he will not interfere with her if she drinks. And the lion says, I make no promise. And then she says, well, I'll go elsewhere And then he says, there is no other stream. It's just so good. Um, Sin and its consequences you see playing out over and over and over again in the story. The unfolding of when you choose to do the wrong thing, even though you can be forgiven for it, there's a train of consequences that comes with that. And Lewis shows that not just with big sins like shoving Eustace off the cliff to his possible death, which fortunately Aslan saved him, or if it's just Eustace being irritable. Um, All of those things cause problems with living out the quest. Aslan's call and task, Aslan is not interested in some sort of mediocre existence. Aslan is calling them to something that is a glorious destiny that is far beyond their natural capabilities. And the idea is it's something they can only do with his help. And so very important for us in our culture where there is this uh, really strong identification of what you do as a job with who you are. And the, the old medieval idea of what vocation really means and God's call on your life and all that has gotten lost in this consumerist view of things. So the story has a lot to say about that. And then the signs, uh, Lewis's symbol for scripture, uh, where Aslan tells Jill, memorize the signs, talk about them in the morning when you get up, talk about them as you walk by the road, when you lie down at night, just like Deuteronomy 6. And the whole idea that they are the most important things. He says, nothing else matters Except the signs, and that when you get out of my country where the air is clear and I'm fully present with you, you're going to descend into the fog and you're going to have that much more need of remembering the signs every single day and practicing them so that you're fully ready for whatever may happen to you. Wow, that's a word. Yeah. Wow. That's and then this identity and courage, I love this scene of. Poor Eustace, uh, they've gone through all this. They finally get to the castle where they have good food and comfortable beds and a fire, and they're awakened in the middle of the night and dragged out the window by these creepy two-and-a-half-foot-tall owls, and then they're flown through the cold night, holding on to the owl's feathers, and then dumped up in the top of an abandoned belfry that's full of creepy two-and-a-half-foot-tall predator owls. And Eustace, not knowing anything about these owls, right at the beginning, stands up and says, if this Parliament of Owls is any kind of plot against the king, I have nothing to do with it. I am Caspian's man. I am the king's man. And his sense of his identity is so rooted in Aslan and the relationships that he has there that he is boldly standing up and saying, I will have no truck with anything that is against the king. Great lessons there, too. Sin, small and large, have consequences. Comfort is often the enemy of the quest. This is one of the most major themes in this book. And as we've said before, comfort in and of itself is not a bad thing. God is the creator of comfort. The warm fire, the tasty food, all of those things, the beauty of the seashore, all of those things are gifts of God. But when we pursue those things so that we become deaf to hearing God's voice, Or we postpone the quest, the call that's on our life because we're so desperate for the comfort that they can become deadly. And we see how that happens in this story. And then the fourth point in those chapters, to carry out Aslan's call, we often need people very different from us. And this is a great message to the body of Christ right now where it's so splintered where the children in the story could never carry out this quest without the aid of Puddleglom. Puddleglom is of a different race. He's green. He has hair that's like Spanish moss. He talks funny. He eats funny. He lives in a house that's a wigwam. And for upper-middle-class British children from a private school, uh, or public school as the case may be there, um, this is way outside their comfort zone. But if they had not been in partnership with Puddleglum, they would never have achieved the quest. And Puddleglum is a beautiful example, almost like the Good Samaritan, sort of the shocking person who is the hero. Puddleglum, when he's told that these children who were sort of dumped into his life by Aslan are there because of Aslan, he immediately drops everything and makes it his chief goal to serve them and Aslan's quest. Then the reality of evil and its seductive beauty, uh, that is uh, all about the Lady of the Green Kirtle. And remember we said she is drawn from uh, John Keats' poem, Lamia, about the woman who's the temptress, who is a great beauty but is really a snake. Um, And the whole idea is that Beauty, even though it's one of those things that's part of the transcendentals, it can also be used as a lure to the dark side. So you have to be careful and discerning when dealing with beauty. Then the idea of safety and wise counsel. Puddleglum tells them over and over, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And they're like, we don't care what you think. We are going to harfang. And as always in Lewis, words mean something. Harfang is the French word for a predatory owl. Um, so that might be a good clue that the giants of Harfang are not, in fact, the gentle giants. And if, if they'd listened to Puddleglum, they would never have ended up locked in a castle, getting ready to be put into a pie shell uh, as the main course for dinner. So again, the flip side of that is the danger of being wise in your own eyes Remember that scene where Puddleglum is talking to them and trying to remind Jill about what the signs are. And Jill gets very frustrated because she wants a fire and a comfy bed. And she says, oh, bother the signs. Well, that is not a good idea. Uh, And she forgets about the signs. She refuses to discuss them because she thinks she knows what she's doing. And in that moment, they are actually walking Inside the letters of the third sign, but they're so blinded by their hunger for comfort that they miss what's right in front of them. It's an astounding scene. And then again, comfort is the enemy of the quest as they go into this castle and all sorts of terrible things happen. So the next one, uh, the vital role of encouraging fellowship. Uh, this is so... Beautifully portrayed when they come out and escape from the castle and they go back into the ruined city of the giants and they are catapulted down the slope and all of these stones are falling on them and it's dark and they're bleeding and it smells bad and it's completely out of control and they get down to the bottom of it and there are these earthmen waiting for them these creepy creatures with all kinds of different feet and um, weird expressions and odd silences and all of that and so they're terrified and so as if that is not bad enough these earthmen are armed and are pointing spears at them and lead them along and they finally they're going down this tunnel where it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And remember, Jill is claustrophobic, and she flips out, and they get to this last little part where there's this little crack that you have to turn sideways to go through. And she's like, I can't. I'm done. And at that point, all of the Earthmen point their spears at her. And Puddleglum and Eustace take her by the hand, and Puddleglum starts talking to her about some happier things and says, we are going to go with you through this. And literally, Puddleglom takes her hands and Eustace takes her feet and they hold her all the way through the journey into this crack and then back out into a wider space. And it is a beautiful example of Christian fellowship. It's a lot like what Jeff was talking about tonight um, because so often Christians do Hurt their own wounded rather than working to support them. And this is a beautiful example of that encouraging fellowship. And then scripture and layers of meaning. Uh, when they get to the uh, headquarters of the uh, Green Lady, we'll call her for now, um, and they talk about, not very brightly, they shouldn't have talked about this, but they mention one of the signs and they talk about the under me that they missed. And the dark knight is there, who has not yet been revealed about who he is. And he says, oh, that's so stupid. You got, you thought that was meant for you? That's the remains of an old tombstone that had this inscription on it that's all weathered away, and that's all that's left. And those words don't mean anything for you. Ha, ha, ha. You're so dumb, essentially. And uh, what... Puddleglum says is it's a great theology of scripture in one sentence he basically says Aslan knew what he was doing when he told you this sign when he gave you those words Aslan was there when the original was written Aslan was there when it became those two words and Aslan knew that this would happen and it would be there and those words are for you And it's exactly the same thing as the multiple layers of meaning you see particularly with prophecy from the Old Testament. We talked about Psalm 22 as a great example of that written 1,200 years before Jesus' crucifixion. But talking about crucifixion, um, talking about details of what happened on the cross, something that had a present fulfillment in the Old Testament time, but had a future fulfillment at Jesus' time. And then now for us, has a fulfillment of encouragement. So uh, does a great job with that in the story. And then uh, Plato's cave, uh, that whole idea of the people chained in the cave that have never been anywhere other than in the darkness, looking at the back wall where there's a fire and light behind them that they can't see. And all they see are shadows. And the shadows, they can identify the shadows and maybe even name them or see patterns in them that's all they've ever known for years and years and decades and decades and then one day one of them gets loose and goes outside and sees the fire and sees the trees and the beauty of the sun and all of that and when that one comes back in of course all the other people say that the person who escaped is what crazy crazy Because everyone knows that this is all there is. There is nothing else. This is reality. And of course, this is the whole types and shadows idea that is all through scripture, uh, that particularly in the book of Hebrews is talked about, that the heaven reality, the vault of heaven, is where all truth, beauty, and goodness reside, and that everything on earth that we have is a type or a shadow, an imperfect copy of that perfection that exists in the kingdom of God. And that when we are in this earth and we start thinking that this is all that there is, we shortchange ourselves of wonder and meaning and transcendence (coughs) and beauty and all of those things. And not to mention that when we think all this, this is all there is, the atheistic, nihilistic, materialistic, worldview that we've talked about where it's just an accident whether you turn into a human being or Henry Fishburne or a cockroach or a tree or whatever it might be it doesn't matter it's just all an accident and the allegory of the cave says if that reality outside the cave is real that changes everything it changes all of your fundamental assumptions it changes the meaning of life And then the last part, trusting Aslan and the signs, remember that vivid scene where the children are up there with the dark knight and they are listening to the fact that he has to be restrained in this chair and that he will go mad and try to kill them if he gets loose. And so... He is in the chair and he starts having this fit and they're terrified and they make this pact with each other. No matter what he says, we are not going to let him out of that chair because he'll probably kill us. And so he starts talking and screaming and now saying he's sane. And then come those very difficult words for the children to hear. In Aslan's name, cut my cords. And, of course, that's the fourth sign. And the children are terrified. And so they say, well, of course, he must have just known that that was one of the signs. And we shouldn't really pay attention to that. We should know better than to pay. They want to explain away the plain meaning of Scripture, for example. Um, so they want to explain that away. And good old Puddleglum, when one of the children says, oh, what are we to do? Puddleglum says, I think we know what we are to do. And then the response is, oh, so if we cut the cords, everything will turn out all right because we're obeying what Aslan said. And Puddleglum, again, with some great theology, says, no, we don't know that it's going to turn out all right. We might all be killed. But that if that is what Aslan's plan is, that is the plan that is for good, that will be for our ultimate good and for the ultimate good Of Aslan's kingdom and so they very bravely say goodbye to one another and cut the cords and then the prince comes out and the first he pulls his sword up and they're all terrified and then he attacks the chair and uh, (laughs) destroys the chair. So that is where we got to last time and then chapter 12 is the one of the richest chapters that Lewis ever wrote in anything that he did. And I really want to commend to you the handouts tonight, Um, particularly if if you're scuba diving um, or even if you are snorkeling, um, these will repay you. They are worth your while. But a couple of themes. Enchantment leads to slavery. What is reality? The Plato's cave thing again. Pain can clarify truth and evil wants to destroy and will brook no compromise. And before I get into unpacking this, I wanna just take a little detour for a minute to talk about why I think this chapter is so unbelievably important. And the reason that I think it's so unbelievably important is that our culture is exactly where these children are standing in this room with the prince, with this lady of the green kirtle and the reason for that is that what lewis has done so skillfully is he has shown us what the end result of reductionism is And i don't want to scare you with using some of these bigger words but reductionism is just what it sounds like reducing everything down to the bare minimum and so here the Lewis has taken out everything. The world is gone. The creation is gone. All we're left with is this dark, depressing, awful underworld that's full of these shadowy people who are silent. And there is no joy. Um, The only beauty that there is is in this little part of the um, green lady's castle because she keeps the beauty to keep the prince in her thrall. And so the children are left with this decision about what is truth, what is reality. And in a reductionistic world, there are two competing narratives about what's real. And there's no evidence if all you believe in is the dark realm. There's no evidence to help you decide which of those is true. And I want to read you just a little excerpt um, from one of the handouts that I think does a really good job with this. And uh, this author um, writes for uh, a blog that's an Inklings blog called An Unexpected Journal, uh, which is a, a great name. But she says, the dark realm, utterly cut off from the sunlit heavens above, functions as a symbol of reductionist materialism and the absolute denial of any supernatural reality. Here in the dark castle, the children in Puddleglum face a dilemma. Did the Green Lady rescue the Black Knight from an evil enchantment? Or did she capture him and place him under enchantment? Is she working hard to free him from this dreadful enchantment? Or to enslave him permanently? Both stories seem possibly true. How can they know which to believe? These contrasting narratives are analogous to the conflicting Christian and atheistic explanations of reality. Do we long for immortality because our souls were made for eternity or is belief in heaven merely a fancy created by wish fulfillment? Is reality limited to to only the things we can see and feel and measure or is there a reality beyond the material? If two opposing explanations of reality can apparently both explain all the available data, how do we discern which is true? That's kind of a lot to get your head around, but um, it is in the handout, so I commend that to you. But the idea is that when you strip away everything and you deny the existence of the supernatural or anything beyond the walls of this world it becomes very difficult to know what to believe. And truth is what gets sacrificed. Truth gets sacrificed because each person, as we've talked about, has his or her own truth. And the standard of absolute truth goes out the window. But what Lewis does here is he shows us, through Puddleglum's speech, how to refute all of that. So moving right along, um, the enchantment leading to slavery, this is a great theme as well because I want you to think about enchantment in a broad sense, not just uh, the fairy tale sense of having a spell cast on you, but in the sense that Lewis uses when he talks about that we all are in need of the strongest possible spell to break the evil enchantment of worldliness that has been laid upon us. So, I want you to think about enchantment being worshiping some idol, some thing of this world, and how when you worship the wrong thing, when you're not worshiping God, that leads to slavery. So, I uh, have this little excerpt. "'How now, my lord, prince,' she said, "'she being the lady of the green kirtle. "'has your knightly fet not yet come upon you, "'or is it over so soon? "'Why stand you here unbound? "'Who are these aliens, "'and is it they who have destroyed the chair, "'which was your only safety?' "'Prince Rillian shivered as she spoke to him. "'And no wonder, it is not easy to throw off "'in half an hour an enchantment "'which has made one a slave for ten years.' Then speaking with a great effort, he said, Madam, there will be no more need of that chair. And you who have told me a hundred times how deeply you pitied me for the sorceries by which I was bound, will doubtless hear with joy that they are now ended forever. There was, it seems, some small error in your ladyship's way of treating them. It's a little ripe sarcasm there. But the idea is, remember, Rullian initially is seduced by her beauty. And he is seduced by her beauty and ultimately becomes enslaved to her against his will. And, but the reason that it happened in the first place is that he put himself in a position where he was vulnerable to that. And it led to the slavery that even when he realized, you can see she still has power. The enchantment still has power. It's like somebody who, as an alcoholic, um, even if you've been sober for 20 years, you are one drink away from falling off. And Lewis is using that kind of imagery here uh, for the slavery. And then Jill. Uh, We've been there too, Snap, Jill. This is after the witch says there's no such thing as Narnia. She was very angry because she could feel enchantment getting hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could still feel it showed that it had not yet fully worked. And this time, it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted. For now, the magic was in its full strength. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you're not enchanted at all. And again, the alcoholic is a great example here. Ask any alcoholic who's not in recovery, do you have a drinking problem? and they will deny it till the cows come home. And the more that you fall to the slavery, your view of reality becomes so warped that you literally cannot see anymore. And Lewis does a brilliant job of illustrating this point. And then, uh, I could spend a whole year on point two, but I'm not, uh, what is reality? And That seems like kind of an esoteric question. It sounds like the 60s. But it's such an important question. It is the most important question that there is. And for so many of us, we are like the earthmen. We are bound to the duties that we're doing, and we go through the motions of what we do every day without ever thinking about what is the purpose and meaning of life? Why am I here Is there a God? All of these kinds of things. And when we have the wrong idea about reality, the whole way that we spend our lives can be an utter and complete waste. And I love the way Lewis portrays this. So the first thing is when the prince is waking up. This is before um, that they have let him um, completely out of the chair. So he says... Enchantments, enchantments, the heavy, tangled, cold, clammy web of evil magic, buried alive, dragged down under the earth, down into the city blackness. How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or a thousand years in the pit? Maggot men all around me. Oh, have mercy. Let me out. Let me go back. Let me feel the wind and see the sky. There used to be a little pool. When you looked down into it, you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green, and below them, deep, very deep, the blue sky. And this is a beautiful image of coming awake to reality. And Lewis has packed some of his favorite things in here. One of his favorite things is the idea of mirrored truth, uh, which if you've read... uh, The Last Battle is all over that. It's also in The Weight of Glory and a number of his other works. And it's the idea, it's also in Mythopoeia or Mythopoeia, that poem uh, that Tolkien wrote for Lewis. It's the idea that when you can see properly, i.e., when you're seeing through kingdom eyes, that the reflections that you see are reflections of the vault of heaven. They're reflections of what is real and true and good and beautiful. And so this idea here is that in this pool, he sees not a pool that looks down into the dark emptiness of the underworld full of maggot men, but he looks into the pool and sees the reflection of the beauty of the growing trees and the deep blue sky. And he's also layered in here, this is almost like a quotation from G.K. Chesterton's biography of St. Francis. When St. Francis was in the cave, cave, hello, St. Francis was in the cave uh, dealing with the materialism of the world and how to live, and he came out walking on his hands, So he's upside down, and as he's upside... Are you talking about a handstand, or are you talking about on all fours? No, on his hands, like a handstand. Okay. Yeah. So So he's upside down. So when he looks, everything seems to be hanging. The trees are hanging. The sky is way beyond. So everything is hanging, and he sees that as a metaphor for how all of creation hangs on the word of God. So Lewis is is packing, I mean, it's like 10 words, but he just brought that whole thing into this as well. And I could go on and on about that, but I won't. Um, And then the next part, when they're talking about Narnia, and the, the witch is so seductive. She's so seductive. She's so nice. She's so smarmy. It's unbelievable. So Narnia, she said, Narnia, I've often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. "'Dear Prince, you are very sick. "'There is no land called Narnia.' "'Yes, there is, though, ma'am,' said Puddleglum. "'You see, I happen to have lived there all my life.' "'Indeed,' said the witch. "'Tell me, I pray you, where that country is?' "'Up there,' said Puddleglum stoutly, pointing overhead. I "'I don't know exactly where.' "'How?' said the queen, with a kind, soft, musical laugh. "'Is there a country up among the stones and mortar of the roof?' "'No,' said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. "'It's an overworld.' "'And what or where, pray, is this, how do you call it, overworld?' "'Oh, don't be so silly,' said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment "'of the sweet smell and the thrumming. "'As if you didn't know it. "'It's up above, up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. "'Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there.' "'I cry you mercy, little brother,' laughed the witch. "'You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. "'I have no memory of that meeting, "'but we often meet our friends in strange places "'when we dream, and unless all dreamed alike, "'you must not ask them to remember it.' "'Puddleglum was still fighting hard. "'I don't know rightly what you all mean by a world,' he said, "'talking like a man who hasn't enough air, "'but you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, "'and still you won't make me forget Narnia.' "'and the whole overworld, too. "'We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. "'You may have blotted it out "'and turned it dark like this, for all I know. "'Nothing more likely. "'But I know I was there once. "'I've seen the sky full of stars. "'I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning "'and sinking behind the mountains at night. "'And I've seen him up in the midday sky "'when I couldn't look at him for brightness. "'What is this sun that you all speak of?' "'Do you mean anything by the word?' "'Yes, we jolly well do,' said Scrub. "'Can you tell me what it's like?' asked the witch. "'Thrum, thrum, thrum,' went the strings. "'Please it, your grace,' said the prince, "'very coldly and politely. "'You see that lamp? "'It is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room "'and hangeth moreover from the roof. "'Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, "'only far greater and brighter.' It giveth light to the whole overworld and hangeth in the sky. Hangeth from what, my lord? asked the witch. And then while they were all still thinking how to answer her, she added with another of her soft silver laughs, You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it's like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there's nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. "'The lamp is the real thing. "'The sun is but a tale, a children's story.' "'Yes, I see now,' said Jill in a heavy, hopeless voice. "'It must be so.' "'And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. "'Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, "'There is no sun.' "'And they all said nothing,' she repeated in a softer and deeper voice. "'There is no sun.' "'After a pause and after a struggle in their minds,' All four of them said together, you are right, there is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a son, said the witch. No, there never was a son, said the prince and the marshwiggle and the children. It's so beautifully described the seduction of the enchantment that she's trying to work on them. But notice the images that Puddleglum holds on to. Puddleglum holds on To the images of created light, the sun and the stars. Now remember in the planet Narnia typology, this is the story that relates to the moon. And so all of the moon's light is a reflected light, not a created light. And so Puddleglum is hanging on to that light. And he says, I know it because I've been there. So he is testifying from his experience And he's saying, you can't argue with my experience. You can make up whatever stuff you want to, but I know what I've experienced because I know it in my heart. But she continues to work on him. And remember the whole thing we talked about before when they were in the castle, that when you get in certain environments, it is going to be very hard to not fall to whatever is being foisted upon you. That's why scripture says, flee temptation. And it's like that whole part that we talked about that Puddlegum never wanted to go to Harfang, but he compromised and went in with the children to protect them. And then they end up eating talking stag. And it's that whole idea that when you compromise and you enter into a place that you should not be, suddenly the unimaginable becomes not only possible, but normal that it just seems normal to be eating a talking stag. So, Lewis has set this up said so that they are falling prey to the enchantment and they've argued and they've argued but their arguments are not working and the kinds of things that the witch is coming back with if you look at some apologetic arguments this is it's exactly the same kind of thing if you were to switch it about the reality of the kingdom of god it's the same arguments so it's because they didn't leave they should have just tried to leave yes it's because they didn't leave her presence that they right or you could say it's just bad luck or you could say it's because lewis wanted to be able to talk about all this Uh, (laughs) but yeah if they had fled immediately then they might have been able to escape all this Right. So we know Jesus could go into any environment. Right. Authority, and he shows us that we want to become sons of God. But if you aren't yet at that level of spiritual maturity, a baby can't do anything, a toddler. Right. So he's showing us don't go into certain arenas right. when you're not ready. When you're not ready, absolutely. And then this beautiful part about pain can clarify truth. Uh, Lewis is renowned for, in his apologetics works, talking about a particular theme and then portraying it fictionally. And and the problem of pain, one of the most famous quotations from that is that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that pain clarifies very often truth and it resorts your priorities. That you can be sort of going merrily along following your own desires, but then if you run into disease or trouble or tragedy all of a sudden you get brought up short and all those ultimate questions come back and it works the same way on the national level you know one of the things that you can remember from september 11th was droves of people going to churches congress this is hard to imagine today congress joining hands in front of the capitol and all singing god bless america together you know, it is those kinds of things. When they happen, they bring you up short and clear the air. They clear the fog. So here comes Puddleglum, uh, being the hero once again. Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would hurt a human. For his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's but he knew it would hurt him badly enough, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth, and three things happened at once. First, the sweet, heavy smell grew very much less, for though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely, of burnt marshwiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads again and opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different from all the sweet tones she had been using up until now, called out, "'What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth, "'and I'll turn the blood to fire inside your veins.' Thirdly, the pain made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear." "'and he knew exactly what he really thought. "'There's nothing like a good shock of pain "'for dissolving certain kinds of magic. "'One word, ma'am,' he said, "'coming back from the fire limping because of the pain. "'One word. "'All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. "'I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst "'and then put the best face I can on it, "'so I won't deny any of what you said. "'But there's one thing more to be said, even so.' Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have, then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan deleted. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready... We're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. Now, this is a great speech. It is a great speech. And I commend it to your meditation because there's so much in here. This is where the ontological argument comes in. And how many of y'all have ever taken a philosophy course? Okay, goods. all right. So if you've studied philosophy, if you don't know this, don't worry about it. If you've studied philosophy, you know there are two branches of philosophy. When you talk about metaphysics, you have ontology and epistemology. And ontology is how do we know about being? How do we know about existence? Epistemology is how do we know about knowing? And this is all very abstract. But the ontological argument, which is one of the proofs for God, Um, was developed by Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, back around, I think it's 1100, something like that, long, long, long ago. And Anselm's idea is that if we can imagine something, like say we can imagine a god, the kind of god that we would imagine on our own is something like Zeus, like the Greek gods, that are kind of in our own image but with some superpowers. But that the ontological argument is that um, there's much more If we can imagine that, then there's much more behind that that's real. And I'm not going to go into all of them because it would take forever to explain it all. But one of the best ways to look at the ontological argument is more in terms of the how it helps you appreciate things. So it is more along the lines of when there is a reality, something that puts everything together that you can see, it means there must be something much more behind it. And that's kind of what Puddleglum is getting at here, that if they can talk about Narnia and Aslan (coughs) and the beauty of the overworld, um, and she says that all there is is this dark kingdom, that she's got to be wrong because there's evidence that there must be more. There's evidence that there must be more. And that's why he can say, our world that we made up yours flat. Uh, You know, it is that there there has to be more, because if we can imagine this much, there has to be that much more beyond it because we are finite creatures. Don't get hung up on that, but it is, it's is—it's a brilliant use of that uh, ancient apologetic. And then his whole um, talking about uh, how her kingdom is so very depressing and you know, why would you ever want to live in a place like that? And this gets at one of the chief things that apologists in our culture today are telling us that one of the great things that Christianity has to offer in our culture right now is that offers a narrative where there is meaning and purpose and beauty and love and all of that. Whereas the atheistic narrative really all there is is despair. So, that, in and of itself, is something that is a huge gift. And then, whew, okay, um, very quickly, the last point. Evil wants to destroy and will brook no compromise. We, we've talked about this a little bit before, but we have this idea that there isn't really such a thing as evil. And so anything that's out there, we can compromise with it. We can find a middle way. Lewis is very clear that evil is real, And that you cannot compromise with it. And when you cross it, it may be all nice and lovely and kind and all of that. But when you cross it, it will turn on you and try to kill you. And he portrays that beautifully with the witch. So the prince shouted suddenly, Where? Look to the witch. When they did look, their hair nearly stood on end. The instrument dropped from her hands. Her arms appeared to be fastened to her sides. Her legs were intertwined with each other and her feet had disappeared. The long green train of her skirt thickened and grew solid and seemed to be all one piece with the writhing green pillar of her interlocked legs. And that writhing green pillar was curving and swaying as if it had no joints or else were all joints. Her head was thrown far back, and while her nose grew longer and longer, every other part of her face seemed to disappear except her eyes. Huge, flaming eyes they were now, without brows or lashes. All this takes time to write down. It happened so quickly that there was only just time to see it. Long before there was time to do anything, the change was complete, and the great coil, the great serpent which the witch had become, green as poison, thick as Jill's waist, had flung two or three coils of its loathsome body around the prince's legs. Quick as lightning, another great loop darted round, intending to pinion his sword arms to his side. But the prince was just in time. He raised his arms and got them clear. The living knot closed only round his chest, ready to crack his ribs like firewood when it drew tight. The prince caught the creature's neck in his left hand, trying to squeeze it till it choked. This held its face, if you could call it a face, about five inches from his own. The forked tongue flickered horribly in and out, but could not reach him. With his right hand, he drew back his sword for the strongest blow he could give. Meanwhile, Scrub and Puddleglum had drawn their weapons and rushed to his aid. All three blows fell at once. Scrub's, which did not even pierce the scales and did no good on the body of the snake below the prince's hand, but the prince's own blow and puddle glooms both on its neck. Even that did not quite kill it, though it began to loosen its hold on Rillian's legs and chest. With repeated blows, they hacked off its head. The horrible thing went on coiling and moving like a bit of wire long after it had died. And the floor, as you may imagine, was a nasty mess. And Lewis does such a great job of portraying this, that this beautiful, sweet, wanting to help, wanting to be understanding. As soon as she's really crossed, turns on them and wants to kill them and very nearly succeeds. And it's such a beautiful portrayal of why you can have no truck with evil, that when you try to get involved with evil, it's the same principle that you see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund starts getting involved with Jadis, the, the white witch, he is drawn in and he cannot get out. And she, her aim is to kill him. So, uh, so much in the chapter, we've only skimmed the surface. Um, I'll send you these reflection questions. Uh, but there's a lot to think about here. And particularly, I want to encourage you to think about the framework of reality. Because I think for all of us, particularly as Christians, it's easy to think, well, of course, I believe in the kingdom of God and that's my reality. But there's a lot of thrumming in our world. There's a lot of thrumming and there are a lot of nice seductive voices that are speaking to us. And it's very easy without realizing it to get on that slippery slope of compromise. And I think that if the church were to wake up and think about this, that we might see a lot more focus on the kingdom of God. So uh, thank you for hanging in there with all of that. Um, Do take the handouts and read them. Let me say a quick prayer, and then I have a quick announcement. Mm -hmm. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious 12th chapter and for the deep truth that is contained in it. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in understanding and applying this truth to our eyes, Lord, in those places where we are uh, seduced by the soft voice and by the thrumming string and the sweet smell of worldliness, we pray that you would break that spell with the truth of your scripture and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we might be set free to serve you with our whole heart. Lord, we pray that you would guide us, that you would help us to follow you, to follow the signs that we might live out your calling on our lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.